Welcome to the great conversation where ideas matter. Ideas shape markets, ideas change the world. One of the most fascinating journeys I've been on is understanding how leaders move from different phases of their lives, the learnings that prompted these inflection points as they move from one theater of action, if you will, to another. And, and how those learnings created change in how they saw the world and themselves in it. And, um, and I uh, came across uh, a leader the other day uh, on the recommendation of one of our great conversation participants, who is the former vice president and chief security officer of one of the largest utilities in the United States, um, American Electric Power, and is now the founder of Relentless Effort, uh, dedicated to helping people live their best lives. Uh, imagine that, a chief security officer helping people live their best lives. And I can't wait to have a great conversation with Stan Partlow. Stan, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Ron. I really appreciate the opportunity. Well, Let's, um, let's first step back for a second and gain some perspective. Um, you started many years ago, from what I can tell, as a, um, in your journey in the security industry as a special agent with the FBI. Is that correct? Actually started even prior to that as a police officer in Columbus, Ohio, and then became a special agent with the FBI and then left the FBI, um, uh, as, as some would remember. So Ron is being very kind by saying, I've got a lot of experience, which translates to I'm an old guy. Um, but back in the 80s, when I was in the Bureau, a trip to New York City was uh, a very difficult transfer. Not that it's not today, but then it was much more difficult than today. Uh, there were no cost of living benefits back then. Uh, most of the agents lived a couple hours outside of the city and commuted in every day. Um, and so ended up making a quality of life decision for my family. I had two little girls at that time and a wife who was pretty homesick. So we decided to move back to Columbus and I rejoined the police department, which is, is where my family is. I'm the middle of three generations of Columbus police officers. My father before me and my oldest daughter and her husband are there currently. And, uh, and I finished my career up there and ultimately rose through the ranks and retired as a commander. Um, in uh, of the detective bureau, which was responsible for all the investigative functions, except for narcotics in, in the city of Columbus, which Columbus, Ohio is the 14th largest city in the United States. So not, not a New York level, but certainly uh, not a small town either. Wow. What was that like moving from uh, a law enforcement officer to an FBI uh, special agent? So it was interesting because I was blessed that I went to a resident agency, which was a small office um, that the headquarters was in Charlotte and I worked in Raleigh. So we, there were 16 of us, um, small, relatively small office. And we, we back in the, that day, the bureau was much different than it is today. And, and I worked what they call reactive crime. So my, func my focus was bank robberies, fugitives, um, theft of government property, drug cases. Uh, the Bureau's transition after 9-11 to a much different agency than it was back then. Um, but I was really fortunate that I had some great mentors in that office who had been in the Bureau for many years. 
And I will never forget one of my very best friends uh, always told me, Stan, always remember that um, the local police can always do their job without us, but we can really never do our job without them. And having come from a police family and being a, a police officer myself, that really resonated with me. So um, it was a great opportunity. I had an incredible career. Uh, I, w I stayed in Raleigh for four years, which was pretty unheard of for a first office agent. But I worked some pretty big cases and kept getting extended, uh, you know, six months and then a year and then another year and, and uh, had, a, had a wonderful experience. But, um, you know, again, sometimes you have to make decisions for your family. And at least in my book, uh, any decision you make for, for your family will never be the wrong one. So um, I brought my family back home and uh, it was a great decision for my kids and my wife. And, and uh, I never looked back and I never regretted that. And when I got back to Columbus and rejoined the department, I hit the ground running and uh, wanted to go back to school and uh, got a couple advanced degrees and then wanted to get promoted and went through the promotional process several times and ended up, um, you know, having, having a wonderful career. So I often have said to people, the two best decisions I ever made in my life were the first one to leave the department and go to the bureau. And the second one was to leave the bureau and come home. So I, uh, I, I was blessed both on both sides of that. And then you had a third decision, which is um, you're in full retirement now and you take on a, a commercial um, uh, position. Right. I, I retired uh, in, in October of 2005 and, and I retire. I, I, I call that a, a um, it's really laughable when I think about it now because I literally retired on Friday and I started working for American Electric Power on Monday um, of, of that, of October of 2005. And then I spent 15 years there, um, ultimately becoming the chief security officer responsible for physical security and cybersecurity. We, we were able to converge the groups together, um, under, uh, uh, my team. And, um, and then I retired, finally retired last July. And then I got this idea that I wasn't really ready to retire and, uh, decided to try to, um, maybe do a little co coaching and consulting. And so that's where the relentless effort, um, LLC came from. So I'm, I'm new in that business, um, and, um, and trying to kind of find my way there. Well, I've got a, I've got this funny feeling since you spent 15 years at AEP, I got a funny feeling you were doing a lot of coaching and mentoring and leadership training of your own people and staff during that time. So tell me, Tell me some of the things you learned during those 15 years that's infusing this next big thing, which is relentless effort. Tell me, tell me what you learned there and some of the pillars that you're carrying forward. So I actually started supervising people in 1993. So of my 40 year work career, 27 years of it were spent in, in leadership positions, formal leadership positions. Um, so, you know, the last part of my law enforcement career and then my entire career at AEP. And I think, Ron, to be honest with you, I think along the way I became what I would call a leadership nerd. Um, I started studying leadership, reading about it, thinking about it, uh, talking about it uh, when I was in my law enforcement career. And I was fascinated by the idea that, you know, leaders, um, leaders really have to learn how to influence people. I mean, that's the, that's the, the big, the, the big 
help, um, I guess the big idea that we have to uh, concern ourselves with. And I think sometimes in the, in the military or paramilitary organizations, leaders don't work very hard at that because they let their rank and their position uh, actually do the influencing for them. And I learned pretty early in my law enforcement leadership career that that's a really short-sighted way of looking at the world. If you constantly have to order people to do something, then they're only going to give you exactly what you order them to do. If you figure out a way to create a relationship with them and capture their heart, they're going to follow you anywhere you want them to go. And they're going to do things that are well over and above any order you gave them. And in fact, they're going to anticipate the next thing that needs to be done, and they'll go ahead and do it for you without you ever asking or telling them to do it. And I saw that firsthand in my law enforcement career where I worked for leaders that were, you know, very big on command and control. And I worked for others that that understood the relationship piece of that. So I think it helped me a lot when I got to AEP because the transition from the, you know, the hierarchy, the the very command and control oriented leadership framework to one that's very flat matrix, where, as we were talking earlier, people call the CEO by his or her first name, which would be unheard of in the other side. Um, I think it really helped me understand how to uh, merge into that culture and recognize that my real uh, mission there as the leader of the security organization was to figure out how to collaborate with people around me versus giving orders uh, which I certainly have the authority to do in my old career. And I I often have felt like a lot of leaders that struggle making that transition really don't figure out that um, that piece of it, that they really have to look at their leadership uh, skills a little differently. Um, one of the things I had the, the, the distinct pleasure of doing, which really fed my leadership nerdiness, if you will, was I had the opportunity to teach some leadership courses on an, a collegiate level. So I really got a chance to dig into this from an academic perspective. And one of the things that I always uh, asked my students to do was to define leadership for themselves, because I felt like it was really difficult to practice something that you don't even understand. And we could all find a definition in the book, but I always thought it was a better idea to really have them dig deep and think about what leadership meant to them. And leadership for me is the art of developing relationships with people in an effort to influence them to achieve a common goal. And so there's a few key words in that definition that have served me pretty well throughout my career. First, it's an art and not a science. Um, I wish it were an equation. I wish we could always come up with the correct answer. But as you know, when we're dealing with human beings, we oftentimes miss the mark. And so it's not a, it's not a science. It really, in my opinion, is an art. Um, the second big word in that sentence is this idea of, of developing or forming relationships, because the relationships are the engine that allows you to drive the influence that ultimately results in the change. So if you're a CSO, a security director, and you're trying to sell a new security policy or procedure, you really have to think about your, your end result which is to get your, you know, your company to follow that particular uh, policy. But how do you get there? And then you have to really think about all the people that you need to touch in order to influence them to make that work. And so you've got to go back and start developing those relationships. And I think sometimes the military 
and law enforcement style of leadership doesn't always account for that because, you know, if you're the general or the colonel or a commander or the chief, whatever rank you have, you tell people we need to go do this and they salute and they go do it. Um, and that doesn't often work in the private sector. So um, I think uh, I think that that idea of thinking about it in terms of relationship building really helped me make the transition from one career to the other. You know, it's so fascinating about that. And I'm a big word guy as well. So I'm circling art. I'm uh, uh, circling development. And then I circled one other word you, you didn't mention, which is to achieve a, and I circled common goal. So there's this notion that leaders are highly collaborative, but are able to understand the patterns of behaviors of those around them enough to understand how they would win from achieving a common goal that you're trying to influence them toward. So influence can be insidious and uh, probably a dark thing, or influence can be a positive thing. Once you put common goal in there, it becomes an engagement thing. And I think that's what you're driving at. Does that sound right? You're exactly right. I mean, leadership on its face is agnostic, right? It, you know, you, one could argue that, um, you know, people like Hitler were great leaders if you use a certain definition of leadership. Now, the, the end goal was horrific. And I, I would never, never suggest that, you know, that he was a good person because of what he did. But from a, the perspective of getting people to follow him, um, he figured that out. Um, so you're exactly right. You've got to make sure that that common goal is an honorable goal, in my opinion, um, in, in order to be a great leader. Um, it's not just about getting people to follow you. It's, it's about getting people to follow you in a, in a, um, in a, in an honorable pursuit. Um, the one thing that's interesting about the common goal, and oftentimes we, especially in the, in the military and paramilitary, um, models, we, we oftentimes forget about that. Um, I spent a lot of my career training law enforcement officers, um, and then training uh, other, lots of other people over the rest of my life. But I, I taught my first group of police officers on third shift in 1984, and that was quite an experience. But I learned pretty early in my training experience that you need to be able to develop what I call the WIFM principle. And WIFM is W-I-I-F-M, what's in it for me. So if you're going to stand up in front of a group of people and try to encourage them to adopt this new program policy, um, this training concept, whatever it is, you really have to connect with them and help them understand the WIFM help them understand what's in it for them. So that's where that idea, for me at least, of a common goal comes in. It, may, it doesn't really do me a lot of good as a leader to develop this idea that we're going to change a policy in our organization because I think that it's going to make our organization, um, it's going to reduce risk in our organization. If I can't get the people that actually have to abide by the policy and implement the policy to understand what's in it for them, it's really not a common goal. It's just my goal. It's my goal as the CSO to say, hey, if we institute X, we believe we can reduce our risk by Y, that's great. But I have to be able to explain it to them in a way that they go, oh, there's really a benefit for me. One of the ways that we did that at AP 
was we aligned ourselves with a safety culture that already existed in the organization. In the electric utility industry, um, it's not uncommon to lose employees through um, accidents and, and um, incidents that, that ca- ultimately cause their death. The electricity that you're working with is incredibly dangerous. The machinery that they work around is massive in a power plant setting. And literally a large company like AP generally loses at least an employee every year. And so our CEOs over the two CEOs that I worked for were very, 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 very committed to employee safety. And so that culture was embedded in, in the, the, really in the, the heart of the organization. So when I was trying to move a security policy forward, like as, as an example, access control at a facility, what I did was tap into the safety culture and then tried to create some stories around what's in this for you. So what's in it for you if you're an employee at that storeroom um, is that it's going to be a little bit more hassle for you because you're going to have to carry your, your badge with you and card in and card out or whatever system we set up. But the with them for you is from a workplace violence perspective, we can keep people out of there like irate customers who would often show up at our facilities. And if we leave those doors unlocked because it's easier for you, um, they just pull the door open and they're inside the building. That's not a good thing. So we, we all always tried to find that common ground and we used to leverage that with them and try to think, okay, we're going to do this. What does it really do for that end user? How is it valuable to them? And that's how we established that common goal. And then it's much easier to influence them to achieve it rather than you saying, you're going to do this because I'm the boss and you're not, uh, which would be that, you know, real command and control approach. What dawns on me, uh, and I practiced throughout my career, is you're going back to the power of story. You know, we know this from history, the great wisdom teachers talked in parables, for example. The power of story, the great film producers have a way of pulling you into a story and suddenly you're, you're feeling like you're part of the story, the great novelists. And you seem to be having the same perspective. And I know that you had one of the highest rated presentations at GSX uh, this past year, and you're also going to be doing some webinars, and you're inverting the pyramid, I believe, in these presentations, and that is now you're not um, talking to the CSO about talking to the employees or the culture. You're talking to leaders about talking to other leaders, including the CEO. Uh, Tell us a little bit about that, the power of story in in that presentation, if, if, if that's I'm, I haven't heard your presentation yet, but I'm assuming it has a lot to do with that. Is that correct? You're absolutely spot on, Ron. You know, th- this presentation was developed to help people recognize um, that they could do a better job of preparing for those conversations with their senior executive team and their board of directors if they're a publicly traded company or if they're a large organization that has an advisory board. Um, the one thing that's interesting about what you just described, this power of story, is that what I encourage the participants in, in, the, uh, in the presentation and the ultimate webinars to do is to turn this into a conversation about risk management. And the reason that I use that storyline was because everybody that's at a senior executive level in any organization or certainly any board of directors understands risk. 
what they don't necessarily understand are all of the pieces and parts and in the weeds conversations about security. They're not security experts. They are very bright, very intelligent, uh, very well-educated people who have a fiduciary responsibility to their shareholders and their organizations and their employees to manage risk within their organization. That they understand really well. So you're exactly right. What I tried to do was focus on those analogies and storylines that would help them understand the risk versus trying to talk to them about widgets and pieces and parts of security plans and, you know, security technology that, you know, they really didn't care that much about and generally wouldn't understand, not because they're not intelligent, but they haven't grown up with that, um, you know, with that uh, lexicon of, 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 of knowledge. And so you're exactly right. Telling the story is the way to do it. It's interesting. We, we went through a process where we actually developed a risk heat map for our organization and looked at all the risks that we had. Um, and one of the things that I cautioned my team against was something I call uh, the tinfoil hat effect. And, and that is we could get a group of security professionals together and we could come up with some of the most incredibly scary scenarios that would cause all of us to want to stay in bed and just pull the covers up over our heads and never uh, go out in public. But the reality is those don't happen very often. Um, some of them may not even qualify as black swan events because the, the opportunity for them to actually happen is so remote um, that it's, it's literally zero. So what we, what we did instead was we focused on real life examples. We said to ourselves, okay, what if we had the target attack happen in our organization? What if we had the attack vector come through one of our third party uh, vendors? How, would, how could we respond to that? How could we do a better job of, um, of managing those relationships in order to close those vectors down? What if we had something similar to the Sony attack occur in our organization? How, would we, how could we defend against that? How can we um, you know, compartmentalize and segment our network and do things that would help us defend against that kind of attack? Um, on the physical side, we looked at things like workplace violence. You know, if we had a scenario where we terminated an employee that we were concerned about, how would we ensure that that employee isn't able to come back into one of our facilities and, um, and take a life? Um, you know, how do we uh, manage, um, how do we help the employees that are in the field doing our service disconnect work um, be free from being assaulted, uh, which is a real life scenario. So we focused on those real life things. And when we told the story, we actually had an, a real example, either something that had happened within the company or something that had happened to another company, sometimes in our segment, in our sector, and sometimes outside of our sector to say, this is real. We know it happened to company X. Here's what it looked like. And here's what we're trying to do about it from a risk management perspective. So you are spot on um, becoming a great storyteller. And I don't mean that in a facetious way, um, but becoming a great storyteller is really the best way for you to influence people that don't have the understanding of the subject matter, whether it's in security or something else that, um, that you're working with, because you can always find a way to connect with them and relate with them. Another storyline I often use was sort of the medical storyline. 
you know, people watched enough emergency and ER and, and, you know, the doctor shows enough to get this, that if you have an attack on your system, sometimes you have to triage the patient. And anyone that's ever watched one of those shows knows that you're going to treat the breathing and the bleeding before you treat the fractured pelvis. So I would actually turn those conversations into thinking about our network, for example, on the cyber side. So we've got to make sure that our patient is breathing and not bleeding to death before we worry about fixing some of these other parts that were created by this particular attack. And you'd see people, the light bulb go on and their eyes are like, oh, I get that. I understand why you would need to do it in a specific order and why you would need to make sure that these things were taken care of first, because it's very similar to that triage approach that an EMT in the field or a doctor in an emergency room is going to go through. You know, it's so funny. Um, some of the best CEOs, the best leaders I've come across have a uh, know that their main job is navigating risk and opportunity, if you think about it. So every everything is a tool uh, that you can use, including uh, potential incidents or potential risks in the marketplace or even with your own employees and your and the structure of your business. So navigating risk and opportunity is their main goal. And yet the first step is secure the core. Like you said, make sure the patient is breathing. So secure the core before you extend the core. That is grow your business. Know what is making the patient healthy and then how you'll um, create the next opportunity for that patient as well. So I love, I love your storytelling. When, when is the next time uh, you're presenting uh, through the ASSES? So the, the webinar is available to people that, um, that uh, registered in the online version of the GSX con uh, conference. So there were two ways to register for it. You could go in person or you could do it online. So for those out there that have done it, um, that have registered in the online version, that we're going to do it again on November 10th. Um, I think mine is at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. So what they'll do is replay the video of the live presentation that I did, and then I'll be in the chat room, and people can ask questions through the chat function during the presentation. So it, uh, you know, it's it's just an opportunity for them to get uh, some of these conversations, um, continue them um out in you know when people didn't have time to do it in real time they can uh, kind of dial it back and, and be able to replay it again so um it was uh it was a lot of fun i always enjoy working with the security professionals um and and if i can ever add any value to anybody out there i'm always happy to do it because it's uh, uh it's something that we we all need to work together to learn from each other and no one that I've met in my 15-year career in the private sector uh, certainly, uh, you know, has all the answers. And so every time I had the opportunity to listen to someone else present, it did, it did one of two things for me and sometimes both. And I was always excited about either or or both. One, it validated things I was already doing or thinking about. So then I'm like, well, I'm not out on the island. Other people are thinking and doing this. And then secondly, I generally would pick up a nugget or two. Uh, that I hadn't thought about. And so if one or both of those things happened, I was, I was well, um, it was well worth the investment and time uh, to go to the presentation or watch the webcast or the webinar or whatever. So, you know, it's a, it's, it's, it's a lifelong learning. I'm a big Covey fan and, you know, Covey talked a lot about 
sharpening your saw in the seven habits book. And I think as security professionals, that's something that we have to continually do is continue to learn and learn about things that are outside of what we might think about is the core of security. And, and you, you talked a little bit about that, the idea of learning the business and, and developing your business acumen um, and developing your leadership skills. You know, that's, that's very uh, um, different for a lot of people who spent their time becoming experts in a particular uh, discipline. Um, but when you become a leader, um, you know, you have to walk away from that sometimes. And it's funny, I, I've had some folks in my 15 years at AEP where I, you know, brought them on as supervisors and managers and then directors. And I often told them every time they made a leap to the next level, they had to become less technical and more focused on the leadership skills and the communication skills and the collaboration skills. And they really needed to, to make sure that they're delegating the in the weeds technology piece of this to other people and focusing on the people that they lead and then the people that are around them and above them um, if they're going to be effective in that role. So, um, you know, we constantly have to challenge ourselves and learn new things. Well, this has been a great conversation with Stan Partlow. And uh, for those of you who've been listening, you feel like you want to hang around this guy who's dedicated to helping people live their best personal and professional lives. Thanks again, Stan Partlow. Thank you, Ron. I appreciate the opportunity and, and I'm always uh, open to talk with anybody out in the field that uh, um, that's interested in a conversation about this because that's the way we help each other and that's the way we learn. And, you know, ultimately we have one of the most important jobs in any organization and that's really protecting the lifeblood of the organization, protecting the people, uh, the assets, the information, the things that make that organization run. Uh, it's our job to make sure that they get to come to work every day, that they're safe, that the information that they uh, need is, is there and available to them, that the assets that they need to work with are there and available to them. And I, I really took a lot of pride in um, my time um, in that sector. Um, and I had a wonderful law enforcement career and, and I would do it again in a minute, but I, I really had a special place in my heart for the security industry. And I'm always willing to try to help any way I can. So thank feel, you for the opportunity to share that story. I feel it, Stan. Thank you. I appreciate it. It's been a great conversation. It is, yeah. it is, it is, it is.